0: Hello and welcome to Belong's podcast on Building Inclusive Societies, Conversations on Caste and SDG 16. goal 16 is dedicated to the promotion of peaceful and inclusive societies, the provision of access to justice for all, and building accountable institutions. I'm your host, Muda Tariq and together in this series, through conversations with academics, activists and advocates. We we'll look into how the debilitating institution of caste remains a great threat to sustainable development. We will unpack caste politics and its problematic enmeshment with our democratic, social, legal, and educational systems and try to understand how caste is a deterrent to the goals of social justice. Tune in to know more. In this episode titled Collective Movements and Politics of Identity, Amar Sharad takes us through his book The Last Among Equals. We will discuss the gaps between the Sarkari realities and the realities on the ground. We will look into Panchayat politics, the role of judiciary and the Bukhya Masur dynamics, locating it in the overlap of caste, class and gender. We will look into the limitations of policy making and how these grim realities can be changed through collective action. I'm very happy to have with us Dr. Imar Sharan, who is an assistant professor at the University of Maryland. The research focuses on inequality in socially diverse settings and how institutional and technological innovations could empower marginalized groups. Thank you for taking out time for us today and congratulations on your book, The Last Among Equals. I truly enjoyed reading your book. Your writing style kept me hooked throughout. And the first thing that I did after putting down the book was Google who Sanjay Sani was and actually see the pictures of campaign and read about it. What I really liked about the book is how the ethnographer's empathy comes across in between the lines. That is your empathy, your research. It is from a point of empathy, and that was the most wonderful part of your book. You look at the bigger questions of policy, gender, caste, corruption, collective movement, but through very humanized characters that inspired me. So congratulations on the book.
1: Thanks again, Muda, and thanks so much to Team Belong for inviting me.
0: We're very happy to have you here. My first question to you is, can you tell us a bit more about yourself, your work and your research in Bihar, some of which is beautifully culminated in your book, The Last Among Equals. And why did you name your book, The Last Among Equals?
1: I'm actually not from Bihar. I think we should start with acknowledging that one fact that I actually did not grow up in Bihar. My first encounter with Bihar was actually in my late teens. I grew up in Karnataka in a university town called Manipal. And my parents are doctors, my brother is a lawyer, and I had the usual childhood of going to school in a small town where everybody knew everyone else. And I think that kind of sense of community spirit has stayed with me throughout my life in some deep way. And then after finishing high school, I went to their university to pursue economics in my undergrad and my master's. I think I was very profoundly influenced by development economics when I first encountered economics. And this was partly from what I was studying in college and the encounters I had in university, but also partly because I was actually brought under the tutelage almost in some sense of cousins who were both economists. At that point, they were at JNU. This is my cousin Deepa Sinha, who's now at Ambedkar University and does a lot of great work on the economics of nutrition and food systems, and also Himanshu, who works in poverty. And so they got me interested in the deeper questions of development. And my aunt Shanta Sanha, who was then in Delhi, who also is a child rights activist, was also someone who made me question about the fundamental aspects of society that kind of affected the marginalized. And so I think those are my influences. After my master's, I think it was pretty clear to me that I wanted to do something that was more based in the field, in the field when it's more based amongst people, and do research that actually involved talking to humans. And so I worked on research projects. During my master's, I went and did some field work in villages of Karnataka, and then I went to Andhra for another project. And then finally, in 2012, I landed up in Bihar. I was working for the Poverty Action Lab. It's very famous now because the founders, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, went on to win the Nobel. I was a cog in the wheel of the Poverty Action Lab, which is now called JPAL, Of course, the JPAL machinery, I was very much a cog in the wheel. I was a research associate and I worked on a large randomized control trial in Bihar. But basically, what that experience gave me was access to not just people at the top of the government hierarchy and the research hierarchy, but everyone below because it was on the NREGA, Narega, the Rural Employment Carity Act, which I'm sure we'll come to soon. And it involved working in 12 districts. So a lot of field work, traveling to a lot of districts in rural Bihar, talking to people across the administrative hierarchy. And of course, I think the most profound influence in those early days in Bihar was this chance encounter with Sanjay Sani, who is now the protagonist of the book, but who's also a very dear friend. And Sanjay at that point had just returned from Delhi and was just beginning to start his anti-corruption movement in his villages of Muzaffarpur and Bihar. and So that's basically the beginning of the journey. And then over the next seven, eight years, I first uh, started doing more and more research, spending more and more time with Sanjay and the villages of Muzaffarpur. And then eventually I ended up doing a PhD at Harvard on the political economy of Bihar. And everything that couldn't necessarily go into a technical economics paper in the PhD ended up finding their way in the book. And that's basically how the book came about.
0: So follow-up question. Why did you name your book, The Last Among Equals? What was the inspiration yeah. behind it?
1: I think the conceptualization of democracy always says that, you know, one person, one vote, Everybody is equal. Gandhi himself said that his conception of democracy is one in which every vote is equal and that it is the weakest should have the same opportunity as the strongest. And we all know when we encounter uh, the actual functioning of democracy and democratic systems that there are some people who may be equal on paper, but are actually more equal than others. And so we've heard the phrase, the first among equals, but this book is kind of squarely focused on the marginalized groups of the villages of Bihar, the women Dalits, extremely backward caste community members who are casual labor workers. And so... This book is about those last among the equals in some sense. It's also the last among equals because if you think of the administrative hierarchy, the panchayats are again, the elected representatives and the panchayats are also elected. And so therefore, are kind of can lay claim to the title of being a politician a representative, but they're very much the last among equals because they kind of occupy the lowermost tier of the electoral hierarchy. And so that's basically why the title came about.
0: Using examples from your research on NREGA and program delivery, your book talks about how there's a huge difference between promises of equality enshrined in the constitution, something you touched upon earlier, and the way reality and justice pan out on the ground. Can you talk about this using the lens of omissions and commissions that you allude to in your work?
1: So again, great question. So let me just start by defining uh, both errors of omission and errors of commission. Let's say a mistake by omission is basically one where the state kind of neglects to do its duties, not because it intends active harm. It's just can't be bothered to kind of actually do what it's supposed to be doing. Right? That's a mistake by omission. A mistake by commission is one where the state actively crushes the aspirations of the people. It's not necessarily a mistake. It's an act of violence by the state against its constituents. And let me give you examples of both omission and commission. In the book, actually, I talk about this example where the funds for, in, for the implementation of the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, which is now called the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, which I will refer to as Narega because that's the common name used everywhere. Uh, so the funds for implementation of Narega kind of stalled. Okay, So there was this kind of three-month period where there was no money to implement the scheme. Now, Narega is an extremely important scheme that offers a lot of great support for people who are on the margins of society, because it gives them some work to do when there is no agricultural work to do in the villages. Now, imagine that I have done some work. I'm sitting in a village. I've done work. I'm not getting paid. Why am I not getting paid? Because there are no funds. And in the village, if I'm just sitting there, I don't really know why or how or what's going on. I, as a researcher at that point, actually had access to members of the state hierarchy from the village all the way up top. So I kind of did a little bit of digging and it was not very hard to anybody who could have done this. We very quickly narrowed down on what the root cause was. The main cause was the fact that the state funds for Narega weren't being accounted for. So the state had spent some money but had not ended up actually Accounting for that expenditure by actually filling up these internet-based data entry form accountability forms that any local bureaucrat was supposed to do. Now the local bureaucrat hadn't done that, so I decided to go spend time in the in a block office to try and figure out why that was happening. So I land up in the in a particular block office in Rota's district, and this man kind of shows up and he says, "There's no internet." So I am kind of flabbergasted. i say, oh my God, what what happened? And he said, oh, you know, somebody broke the internet wire. And this is 2012. You know, broadband internet was just kind of taking off, especially in Bihar. And he said the wire was broken. And I I was kind of sympathetic. I said, oh, you know, the poor guy is really trying to do work. But then I show up at the block office and then I see his data entry operator, who's the main guy entering the data for Narega and everything else. This person is sitting on his laptop and he's watching a YouTube video. And it's a YouTube video with, you know, one of these, I think, American movies with a hot blonde and a fast car. And I was shocked and I said, hey, you know, this man seems to be watching a video on YouTube and it seems to be going pretty fast because it's a video. Uh, and remember, this is back in the days of Fuji connection, right? And. The person says, oh, you know, the block officer says, oh, that's not the internet that I was talking about. That's his private internet. He can do what he wants with that. He has a Tata Docomo. Back in the day, there used to be these things called dongles. He has a dongle and that's what he's using. But we don't have internet actually to do the data entry because that's government provided internet. And so here was the cruel irony of the whole thing, right? Here, the government of Bihar, while waiting for internet to arrive in the block development officer's office, was busy entertaining itself watching videos on the internet. I mean, this there could have been many local fixes that the local bureaucrat could have tried. You know, somebody at the top could have been slightly taken slightly more slightly more initiative and tried to fix it, but nobody really bothered. They were all just like waiting. And while this waiting was going on, lakhs of workers across villages in Bihar were waiting for their money to come because the data was not getting entered. This is an example of one block, but you know, there were several such problems across several such blocks. So that's basically. Just state apathy. The state is just taking its time, drinking chai, having, making chit chat, you know, dhup enjoying the sun and not really getting work done. So that's one act. That's kind of one kind of problem. That's a mistake by omission. Now, a mistake by commission. And, you know, I speak of about a few ghastly such incidents is one where the state actively crushes. So in in the book, I talk about the Muzaffarpur People's Movement, the anti-corruption movement that Sanjay Sandi started with the women of Muzaffarpur. And one way the state kind of went after the movement was to kind of continuously file fake FIRs, fake cases against Sanjay Sani, against the workers on all kinds of framed up charges, right? So this is a case where the state is actively acting against the interests of the poorest people. So this is a mistake by commission. And so these are examples that I talk about in the book
0: in one of the panels that we have had earlier at belong one of the panelists said that the worst thing that could happen to citizens is their reduction to the term beneficiary because once you become the beneficiary you don't really ask for rights you take it as something that is given to you you know that's something that trickles down moving on to my next question could you tell us more about the mukhya mazdoor dynamics locating it into the overlaps of caste gender and class and about the role that ward members play in this, located as your book describes them both on the inside and the outside.
1: Yeah, so I think the way the village society in Bihar works, one way to think about it, there are many ways to conceptualize it. So let me try and present my way of thinking about it, which is that there is this continuum, there's this hierarchy that flows from the bottom to the top. At the bottom, there is the mazdoor, and especially the mazdoors that we are kind of, looking at in this book are at the very bottom, they come from Dalit caste, they're women, they're often, you know, in their late 30s, early 40s. So they're not really employable in the private labor market, or at least not employable in a gainful way that will actually contribute to their livelihoods in a significant manner. And they come from uh, their casual wage workers. And so those are the at the very margins. And then as you go up the hierarchy, you know, you have members of different castes, you have, you know, these local politicians who are ward members, we'll come to them. And then at the very top, in some sense, is the Mukhya. The Mukhya is the elected representative who kind of heads the entire village. Now, so when you have this kind of continuum, why is it that the Mukhya is at the top? Because let's take the elections of 2001, the panchayat elections of 2001 in Bihar. This was before there was any reservations. This was before there was any kind of real decentralization to layers below the Mukhya basically less than 1% of Mukhyas were Dalits. So basically what these elections were doing was that they were reinforcing the existing feudal hierarchies that had forever existed in these villages by reproducing the same kind of bottom to top distribution where the top parts were still continued to be cornered by the old feudal lords who were basically the elite castes, the men who had ruled these villages, the landlords, Amindars, who had ruled for generations. So that's basically what the Mukya epitomized. Gradually over time, and I talk about this a lot in the book where, you know, in 2006, after the 73rd amendment, was, which was passed in 1992, the Panchati Raj amendments, which was passed in 1992 in India, were finally adopted in Bihar, only in 2006, reservations were introduced. And once reservations came into play, slowly the position of the mukhya became more democratized, where at least for a fraction of the seats, the mukhya's were no longer, at least on paper, they were no longer members of these old dominant castes. of seats were actually occupied by women, which was slowly causing a kind of social churning. The other way in which democratization was happening at the panchayat level was through the empowering of ward members. Now, who are these ward members? I talk of them in some sense as the Trishankus of local government. Trishanku is, of course, a mythical character in Hindu mythology who wanted to kind of access the high heavens and in his mortal body and so decided to try and do it, but was couldn't kind of make it there, but was stuck in some halfway uh, heaven between the earth and the true heavens. And ward members in some sense are like Trishankus because they're neither on the ground like citizens nor are they really high up like Mukhyas. They're somewhere in the middle and for the most, we don't really have any financial powers to actually implement schemes. They're elected representatives. They represent jurisdictions as small as 200 households. You know, 200 households in Bihar is basically three streets. It's you know densely packed Bihar. So you, know, you have a representative for every three streets. But unfortunately, they don't have much powers. And that's where the ward member is kind of located. And slowly in the last four or five years, some financial powers have been allocated to the ward members, which makes them slightly more powerful. But there's many a slip between the cup and the lip and ward members continue to kind of uh, grapple and struggle for powers. And this is not, by the way, even beginning to start getting at, say, the caste and gender hierarchies that play into the ward members. So now imagine you're a ward member who's Dalit or a ward member who's Dalit Mahila. You are basically, almost basically just a citizen. Especially if your Mukhya is an upper caste man and you're a Dalit woman, you and your, the average citizen in your ward are going to be very similar in many ways. So that's the continuum.
0: Uh, You've hinted it in your answer, but I'll still ask it. You write about how having mukhyas from certain communities led to the overall economic pie remaining the same size, but the distribution of the pie changed and minority communities become a little wealthier, whereas the majority communities become a little less so. Is social justice then a zero-sum game or can there be a win-win situation?
1: Let me first give you the abstract version of this answer as the work of people like say Amartya Sen who basically channels Adam Smith or even philosophical normative arguments made by everyone from Gandhi to Ambedkar kind of show a more equal society can actually be beneficial for everyone. To put it really crudely, if a society has Muslims who are healthier, who are more educated, they're more productive, they kind of produce more for people to consume and therefore that spurs more economic growth and it spurs more well-being. So the link between uh, more equality, and especially in a country like India, where the baseline levels of inequality are so high and the baseline levels of deprivation are so high, it is almost uh, nobody's case that having policies that bring about more social justice will not help everybody in the long run. In the short run, maybe, like some of my work with Mukya show, there could be some winners and some losers. But eventually, in the long run, these things could actually even pan out in a way that everybody benefits. Now, I'll give you one more, one kind of concrete example from my own work about how even in the short run, you can see some benefits. So what we did in 2019 was we found that Dalit ward members could actually use a complaint system to complain against their mukhya. So we kind of empowered them. We offered them the choice to complain. They actually complained and things improved because the higher state intervened and kind of Negotiated between the ward member and the mukhya, and made things better in the for Dalit ward members. So this is an example where Dalit ward members benefit. You might now say, oh well, that ward member may have benefited, but they may we have a neighbouring ward member, you know, in the zero sum world, the neighbouring ward member may be punished by the mukhya because they had to give the Dalit ward member something, so they might take away from the neighbouring one. In fact, we find the opposite. We find that there's more stuff being given even to the neighbouring ward member. The reason that this happens is that when the higher state intervenes, the Mukya suddenly realizes that they're on notice, that now they're being watched. So they start performing better for everybody, not just for the person who complained. So similarly, there could be many examples where a social justice kind of framework could actually lead to improved outcomes for everybody, not just in the long run, but also in the short.
0: Coming to the next question, your use of machine and mechanic was really interesting in terms of describing how the overall system is constructed or runs and then how the programs such as the Bihar Grievance Redressal System program can try and fix issues. Can you elaborate a bit on it?
1: Sure. So let's start with the Bihar Public Grievance Redressal Act. It's basically, I think, a landmark act in the history of grievance and systems, not just in India, but across the world, primarily because the act, which was launched in 2016, gave citizens a right to public grievance. Citizen. This is similar to say Narega, which gave citizens a right to work or RTI, which gives citizens a right to information on what the government is doing. So this was a very powerful act in that sense, where citizens could actually take the government to court if their complaints were not being redressed. Now, what does a grievance redressal system do? It's a system that's found across the world again. So now if you think of, say, you know, not just in India, but even now here, I'm right now in Washington, D.C. Even in Washington, D.C., if I see that my streetlight is not working, there's a number I can actually call and somebody in the local government will answer the phone and I can tell them, hey, you know what? The streetlight is not working. Can you kind of get someone to come and fix it? That's basically the idea that citizens can kind of flag complaints about broken public goods in their vicinity. Now, this kind of framework was adopted in Bihar, except it, it made it very powerful. Not only could you complain, your complaint had a right to be heard. There were hundred specific grievance redressal officers who were dispatched from Patna across the entire state, whose only job was to listen to citizens' complaints. And not just this, the system also had a system of hearings. So, first time you file a complaint, you're called back to a hearing where you. The grievance judicial officer and the local bureaucrat who's responsible for solving your complaint. The three of you sit together and you try and thrash out the solution, right? So the Bihar system we actually found was kind of working reasonably well. We studied it for three years from 2016 when it was launched to 2019. By that time, about half a million complaints, five lakh complaints were filed under the scheme. And we did a kind of a sample survey of randomized complainants. And we found that about a third of the complaints were actually being dissolved, which we think is a pretty big number, especially in a low state capacity state like Bihar. So therefore, if you think of the state as a huge machine, One way to think of the grievance additional system was as some kind of a mechanic who every time there was a problem with some part of the system, the mechanic would come and just kind of fix some parts of it and then kind of try and get it back into shape to make it work. So that's basically how the system was working. And that's the machine mechanic framework. Now, what the machine mechanic framework also kind of communicates is that in the end, the grievance additional system is a mechanic. It's not going to overhaul the machine. There are many ways to think about this. I'll give you one concrete example, right? A grievance citizen officer is also an officer of the Bihar state. The bureaucrat against whom the complaint is filed, the mukhya, is also belongs to the Bihar state. Only the complainant is a citizen. So now when I file a complaint, one grievance citizen officer told this very beautifully to me. He said, I can't punish the local bureaucrat too much because today he's sitting there and I am here. Today, tomorrow, we will exchange places and he will be able to sanction me. So I can't. I anticipate the fact that we are all part of the same community, the local state. So we can't really go after each other in a very strong way. So in that sense, it works more like a mechanic. If there's a small problem, you know, like say the Aadhaar number is not working in the system for some reason, or the pension bank account is wrongly entered, those kind of fixes it does very well. If there's a really big problem, often the system can't really fix it, you know, because it would require destabilizing too much. And so in some sense, what I kind of talk about is how, especially very mobilized radical citizens, like the citizens of the Poor People Movement, they are kind of disappointed somewhat with a system like this because their thinking, their conceptualization of how the state should work is far more radical than the space that the grievance of the system offers. And so this limited radicalism is what I think disappoints people who expect a lot, but is also what makes the system work in the first place. Because if it was too radical then the entire state machinery would break down in some sense. And that could result in all kinds of other problems. So a reason a system like this works is that you need a mechanic to come and fix it. You don't need a new car because the state takes, it's just too much to try and replace the state.
0: I really like the sentence that you had written about how the state wants to listen to its own stories of apathy, but with a listening ear and not to mock. So that, that was beautifully encapsulated in that sentence. Coming to my next question, panchayats are replicating the social cleavages of caste, class, religion, and gender. But as you write, they also the whole system is also one of the greatest participatory democracy inventions that has been there. But and have a truly transformational potential to them. So how can panchayats become sites of innovation and change if we truly want caste inclusive development? What is the role of fixes in the whole structure of gram panchayat, gram sabha, etc. versus escalation mechanisms. One key idea that comes in your text is a devolution of power of mukhyas. Could you tell us more about why do you think that matters?
1: So let's start with the last part of your question, which is the devolution of power of the mukhyas. As I told you earlier, the mukhyas kind of are in some sense a reproduction of the old feudal hierarchies in the absence of checks and balances. So one kind of check and balance is to have more financial powers, more implementation powers given to people slightly below the Mukhyas, like the ward members. There are about 13 ward members in every panchayat. You give them a little bit more power, they're able to kind of control the extraordinary power that's kind of concentrated in the Mukhyas. So that's kind of the short answer for why power devolution should happen. Now, there's a much bigger problem with panchayats in India, right? So as you said, it's kind of a radical decision to kind of empower the third tier in this particular way. But this devolution hasn't really happened in the way the 73rd and the 74th amendments of the constitution in 1992 kind of envisaged. Panchayats continue to be implementation outputs outposts for development programs. So Narega is framed in Delhi or in Patna and Panchayats are supposed to kind of implement the scheme, right? Of course, there's a participatory element in all of these things that's embedded in them, but they don't really work as envisaged, okay? So the Gram Sabha is a very good example. Even for Narega, the way it's supposed to work is that you have to have a Gram Sabha where everybody comes together and decides what works that they should undertake under Narega, right? Now, that doesn't really always happen. It's, you know, what I call a gram sham, which is basically that everybody just writes up their own records and they say, okay, the discussion was done. We decided to do this particular kind of work. And then I say, everybody it's basically the mukhya who controls the whole show. So there are embedded participatory institutions within some of these larger schemes that don't necessarily work as they should. But the larger problem is that there is no real innovative panchayat level policy making that has really happened. And that partly stems from a deep suspicion of the political elite at the higher tiers of devolving too much powers to these local, you know, local government units. So panchayats remain kind of implementation outposts. So basically what that means is that we don't really have the kind of innovation that we should be seeing happening at that level. Now, here's one more thought I kind of try and grapple with in the book, which is that to make these institutions even more powerful and even more part of the mainstream system. There should be a funnel that kind of channels really good mukhyas up the political hierarchy. So, suppose I'm a very good award member, I become a good mukhya. If I become a good mukhya, then there should be some way in which maybe political parties or anybody else can encourage me to contest in, say, MLA elections. Right now, there's the Panjati Raj hierarchy has a bunch of like higher tiers, but they're not very powerful. But imagine if I could actually go up the MLA hierarchy. And then kind of be part of that. Like any good organization, you should have this kind of a funnel that kind of puts good people going up. That doesn't really happen at all. So there has to be more integration of the Panchati Raj with the other kind of uh, tiers of government. However, all of this requires a lot more kind of clear thinking at the very highest level also. Because right now... We have this very weird mishmash, we have the 73rd amendment, we have the kind of conservativeness of politicians of the top, we have the mukhyas reproducing old feudal relations at the bottom, but we need a more radical, a more bottom-up conceptualization of panchayats that I don't see happening. And I think, I want to end by saying, I think where we see this happen really badly, I think is in, think of like say the water problem. Groundwater levels depleting across the country and in a a radical way, uh, in a crazy way in the last few decades. You know, part of it is also because these local government institutions don't seem to have the participatory frameworks to kind of collectively act in a way that benefits them, their neighboring panchayats and everyone else. And so they often behave in predatory manners because of policy implementation happening from the top. So there are lots of problems that emerge at the ground, grassroots level, because these institutions are not really participatory.
0: This reminds me of how you mentioned Sarkari realities and the real realities on the ground. And it also brings me to my next question. On paper, as you say, we have these policies which have a very transformative potential to it, but that's not how it is on the ground. I would want to probe a little more here on the role of judiciary in transformation of democratic politics. You mentioned how narrow readings such as in Janardhan Paswan's case whereby the court fails to recognize the instrumentality of political participation. How do you think judiciary can be more caste informed in their rulings, more caste sensitive and does it have to do something with who makes up the judiciary, who is in the court, who is giving these rulings?
1: So. As you just said, the judiciary can be a site of extraordinarily powerful change or no change, as in the case of Jalantz and Paswan in Bihar, which kind of consistently blocked reservations. Bihar actually, if everything had gone its way, Bihar would have had reservations earlier than most other states at the Panchat level. Instead, it ended up being amongst the last few states to implement reservations. So, And a lot of this was because of court-based battles. Courts also play a fundamental role in Panchayat policies. Let me give you one more example. When there was this devolution of powers happening from the Mukhya to the ward member, the Mukhya's of Bihar were very unhappy with this and they went straight to the courts again. And then there was another battle that kind of played out. And in this case, the courts kind of came, kind of, I think, read the mandate of the 73rd Amendment rightly and said that Mukhya's should have some role in the implementation of schemes and they cannot be entirely circumvented. And so, therefore, that resulted in this kind of halfway house where ward members were given the financial powers to implement the schemes, but the funds still flowed through the mukhya. So, the courts emerge as very important sites of contestation for a various set of concerns relating to the third tier of government. Now… And as many other works by many great, even recent constitutional scholars have shown like Rohit Day or or Kautam Bhatia, uh, you know, the constitution and the courts kind of play a transformative role in the way the everyday lives of the marginalized can actually play out. Now... How can these courts kind of make decisions that are more in line with the needs of the marginalized? I don't have any empirical evidence to back what I'm saying here. But I do think that becoming more representative, especially what it did for politics in local government in Bihar. And that's not just my work in Bihar, but there's so much work now, empirical work on local governments across India to show that reservations actually help improve outcomes for marginalized groups. And this is uh, both at the Panchayat level, there's, you know, work that shows at the state level, at the MLA level. You know, if you have people from marginalized groups occupying positions of power, that definitely increases outcomes, you know, well-being of members of marginalized groups. And this is actually a secondary point. The primary point is you want your government to be truly representative. There's a normative point here to be made that representative democracy must have representatives from all sorts of backgrounds. And so that's true of the courts too. So I definitely think almost... I would be surprised if empirical research doesn't kind of very cleanly show that having more diverse members of the judiciary will result in the courts also being more favorable to marginalized groups. So that's something that needs to happen.
0: So basically you're saying that there's a caste nexus which keeps furthering these inequalities. In your book, you also highlight the role of technology, the role of technology is very central to the becoming of Sanjay Sani, from an electrician to a leader of a people's movement. Had he not googled Bihar Mandrega, he probably would not have discovered corruption in his village, as we've seen access to technology and information in particular can fundamentally change the Sarkari realities. How do you think technology can be used to strengthen democracy, keeping in mind the huge digital divide that the country has, which disproportionately impacts people who are already from the marginalized populations, communities? How do we leverage technology then to tackle the big questions of intersectional social justice?
1: Let me start on a slight negative note. In my encounters with technology at Village Politics, at the level of the villages and the last mile delivery problem, I think technology is not going to be the central harbinger of change. Let me just give you one example from my own experiences. Let's say it now has payments made to villages directly to their bank accounts. This is so much better than the previous system where the money would go to the mukhya and the mukhya would then distribute wages to workers, right? So you think that that would then solve the problem of delayed wages. It hasn't. Because the problem is not, is not the fact that the money was going to the mukhya and the mukhya was distributed. The problem was the socio-economic distance between the mukhya and the mazdoor that the mukhya would exploit in myriad ways to continuously challenge any technocratic solution, technology-based solution that comes in. Another example, let me give the empirical one, which is the paper by Karthik and Paul leehaus and Sandeep Sutankar on Aadhaar and Jharkhand. Right? So they ran this with the government of Jharkhand, they ran this large randomized control trial to see if Aadhaar-based rollout for Russians actually helps reduce corruption. It doesn't. Aadhaar doesn't reduce corruption in villages. Why? That's a big question, right? The answer is the following. The way rations work, it's so central to people's lives and there's been so much good work done by so many members of society, activists, local government officials. And the citizens themselves, that the corruption in Russian is no longer the old corruption of where there were these ghost Russian members that were, you know, you had these like fake names being introduced and money, Russians being taken off in their names. That is not happening anymore. What's happening today is that everybody goes to the Russian shop, they show their Russian card, but they don't get their full quota. They're supposed to get five kgs of rice, they get four kgs of rice. This is not going to change whether or not I put. I tell everyone that it is I who came in. In fact, Kartik, Sandeep and Paul in their paper show that ghost workers is not the problem. John Reshetika, khera have shown this about Rashid for a while, about Aadhaar for a while. So I don't think technology is going to fundamentally transform last mile delivery. What it definitely has the potential to do though is to make small changes at the last level that when you have this Socioeconomic distance between the Mukhya and the Mazdoor being bridged, these changes will then help accelerate that problem. So, basically, if the upper caste Mukhya and the lower caste Mazdoor are now talking more like equals, then having money come directly to the Mazdoor's bank account is going to be much more easy and much more useful. And that you see happening in other states in India. So, I think that's basically technology can play. Let me say one last thing technology also has played a very central role in the lives of the Mazdoors of Muzaffar. Right. So the women must use the technology like WhatsApp to communicate with each other, to show government documents to government officers saying, look, we have a document of yours on our phones. Sanjay Sani uses the Internet to kind of understand what's happening on Narega. I think that was actually the ultimate dream of the framers of Narega, that some people like Sanjay Sani will emerge from every village, that they will be able to use technology to look at these transparent records that are available online and question the local state. It hasn't happened as much, but it's still happening. People actually in the Muzaffarpur movement also, for a long time, Sanjay and the mazdoor used to use automated mass voice calling to thousands of Mazdoors to kind of talk about meetings and talk about you know, rights-based programs that the government is implementing and stuff like that. So technology can play a wonderful role in collective action, in mobilizing people and keeping people together. And that has to be acknowledged. But for the overall problem of last night, I think at its heart, you need a more participatory democratic system there's some very nice work by Vijendra Rao, who's at the World Bank, of Biju Rao. They show that even in Gram Sabha, if you give citizens an app or a, on their phone that allows them to track how the quality of the school, the roads, and this is an app that will take citizens' own kind of ratings of their schools and roads and streetlights and pipewater schemes, and then you use the app to get the Masjurs to kind of talk about these problems in Gram Sabha meetings, that could again prove to be a very powerful way of using technology to make participatory democracy work better. So technology can be an abetter, but it cannot be the fundamental harbinger of change.
0: That makes sense. It also brings to my next question. On the right. policy front, tell us whether you think the policies that are made at, say, in Delhi or Patna, take into account the village dynamics. What also stood out to me from your book was how Bhumihars refused to have electric wires over their lands, the electricity that was supposed to go into Dalit households. So given your extensive research and conversation with various stakeholders, do you think that the policymakers anticipate these issues? Is there a conversation, okay, this could happen? And if they do anticipate it, what is done about it? Or is it just left to fade?
1: Let me answer the anticipatory bit first. My large, broad answer is yes, they do anticipate, at least in Patna. Right. The reason is the Patna bureaucrats, the Patna politicians, for example, are the politicians are the smartest people in this whole uh, gamut of individuals we see in politics broadly uh, and society in Bihar at least, because they anticipate everything. They are much sharper, much faster than every researcher you know, every bureaucrat you've met. They are in the game. They have got skin in the game. They've got real skin in the game in a way that nobody else has. The bureaucrat has their job for life. The researcher comes in and goes out. The politician thrives on being re-elected and being part of the conversation. And to do that, they have to constantly engage with what's going on on the ground. So the politicians are really smart and they know what's going on. And to a large extent, I would say the bureaucrats do too. So then that begs your question, if that's the case, why is it that policy they can't anticipate this and make changes? I think that they themselves realize that the scope of the problem is really large and that they anticipate it and they say, okay, we anticipate this may happen in some places, but let's go ahead anyway. Let me give you a couple of examples. So, for example, in the Naljal scheme that I talk about in the book, the Pipe Walker scheme, the Nitish Kumar government actually took a very progressive stand. They said that amongst all wards in a panchayat, the first wants to get access to Naljal should be the Dalit wards, the Dalit majority wards. That's actually a very good idea. That's because you want to kind of, even within a panchayat, which only has 2,500 households, which is relatively small, you may argue, even within those 2,500 households, you first target those households that come from the most marginalized backgrounds. So that's point number one. And so that is a very good example of the government actually anticipating this kind of local caste dynamics, will kind of disempower Dalits. Let's try and control for it. I'm sure they also anticipated. In fact, I'm not saying this only because I'm speculating. The secretary in Patna, who was a good friend with me, the Panchajara secretary, when I told him about how you know there was this caste dynamic between the ward member and the Mukhya. He kind of gave me a lecture that was kind of bang on about how caste dynamics between the ward member and the Mukhya works and how it's not just Dalit, non-Dalit, it's how many sub-caste members. So the Mukhya is, say, Rajput, how many Rajput ward members are there, how the Rajput Mukhya and the Rajput ward members come together to defeat the Dalit ward members or the Bhumiyar ward members. And, you know, there's all of these kind of caste dynamics that play out that these people are very aware of. Similarly for gender. If I go and tell, say, Anitish Kumar today that, hey, you know what, over 60% of Mahila board members are represented by their husbands in government, I don't think he'll bat an eyelid. I think he'll be like, oh yeah, I know that. I mean, these are things that people know. And yet, I think in the reservation case, I think partly driven by Nitish Kumar's own socialist instincts and his instincts for larger social justice-based policies, he introduced reservations. and he realized there would be problems, but he did try and push it. it only partly because of that. I think partly also it was because he wanted to build his own caste base, And that's a separate conversation. But what I'm trying to kind of show you here is that it is not that these people at the top don't anticipate these things. I think that they do. I think what they're not very good at anticipating is the economic consequences of some of their actions, the legal consequences of some of their actions. So those are things that they are less likely to anticipate.
0: So what you're saying is that there's basically a lack of political will, and it's not necessarily just a supply side problem. Yeah. It also brings me to my next question, which is on collective action. You deem collective action as central to change making if it's to be done by citizens, either by entering local politics or having movements, having such powerful movements of their own. Tell us more about Sanjay Sani's movement and whether you would classify it as truly inclusive. And if it's not inclusive enough, who are the people who are not included in this movement?
1: Sure. So let me first begin by talking about the movement and kind of emphasizing how unique the movement is. So the movement was founded, as I told you at the beginning, by Sanjay Sani. In the book, I kind of recount his tale of coming back to his village and fighting corruption there. He basically discovered corruption in the NREGA by chance on the internet. He thought he had discovered, you know, a big scam, a scam that was really worth. He didn't realize it was the story of every almost every village in Bihar. But he kind of came back in a frenzy, discovered all this corruption and then decided for some inexplicable reason, that this is what he's going to dedicate his life to fighting corruption, not just in Narega, but in government schemes and fighting for the rights of the poor. Right, And it was a long journey. But the great thing was it started with him, but very quickly he banded together women workers primarily from his own community, Sanis in his panchayat, but slowly also Baswans, Chamars, Majis. So, you know, a lot of Dalit castes, workers especially came together and he got them to kind of collectively act and mobilize, right? So if you think of the movement itself, it's kind of unique because it has mostly women, they're illiterate, they're Dalits, they come from extremely backward castes, otherwise they're poor workers, they're casual laborers, right? If you look think, tick t- t- all the boxes of last among equals, this is the the very definition of that. And they are voiceless and they are in rural Bihar. And here they are coming together. And it started by someone, a lot of these people's movements, and I don't mean this as a critique, I'm just saying it as a statement of fact. A lot of the people's movements are started by people who look like you or me, who have gone back to their roots to try and fight something, but who have the social capital, the financial capital to kind of take the hit that nobody will come after them if something happens. That is not the case with Sanjay Sadi. So it's the extraordinary movement in that sense. When we talk about the collective action that they practice, I think what the other thing that I really want to emphasize is how they have brought women out into the public space through the movement. So women who are kind of confined to their homes are now firstly, and at five different levels, you can see them coming. out. At the very basic level, they come to these village meetings. So you come out to your village, you meet other people, you talk about what's happening in government schemes. So that's level one. Level two is you go to government offices and you file petitions. You say, I want a job card. I want a ration card. And then you go in a group of 10 women and you go and submit these petitions. Thirdly, you also go and do strikes, which is like the escalation level. So you actually go to a strike in a district office. Many of these women have not left their districts, but to go to the district electorate's office and then do a strike in front of the district magistrate is a revolutionary step for many of them, right? The fourth is they come out in the media. A lot of the movement show up in local media all the time talking about, various policies, issues, like equals with anybody. So a journalist will ask them questions about Narega minimum wage. They will have an answer that is just as sharp as any political, social, economical analyst anywhere in the country. In fact, often much sharper than many of us. And then finally, a lot of these women also come out in local politics. So the social movement kind of funnels people to contest in board member and mukhya elections with sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. When they win, sometimes they leave the movement because there's a contradiction between being a member of a people's movement and being a member of a local government. And sometimes that contradiction becomes too much to handle. But women are coming out, and women are coming out in these big moves. Now, if I have to talk about the criticism of the, or like, what are the shortcomings, I think the one shortcoming, and this is a shortcoming that we have spoken to for a long time to Sanjay. And I think the main point is that the movement continues to remain a little bit Sanjay centric. Even the book in that sense makes the same error, by, but it, you know, a narrative requires a protagonist and it's easy to kind of anchor on the person who founded the movement. And I think the, the poor People's Movement, while there's all of the representation you see at various tiers by women, the face of the movement, the person making the big picture decisions continues to be Sanjay to a large extent. And slowly there have been changes over the last decade. But those changes have been slow and gradual, as opposed to as radical, especially given the other various achievements we have seen the movement kind of achieve over the last decade. It's a really dynamic, inspirational movement in that sense. It's constantly moving forward. And that's what's so exciting about
0: Do you think that this movement is scalable in a sense that here it is in certain wards or in certain districts of Bihar, but would you envisage it as a countrywide movement?
1: I have three answers. Let's start with the philosophical one. The philosophical one is, should a movement scale? In a radical decentralized framework, you should think of, uh, or the Gandhian framework of independent village republics, every village should have its own movement that should be customized to the needs and context of that village. So to expect that a movement should scale itself may be the wrong way to start thinking about the question. I'm not sure I believe in that. Okay, I think it's an interesting position to take. I'm undecided on whether that's the right position. The second point I want to make is that the great post-independence people's movements that we have seen have either evolved, flourished in small geography. So what MKSS has managed to do is to act like a symbol. So would you then say that they're all part of MKSS? No, because MKSS didn't believe in expansion, but believed in acting as a symbol, as a pilot for everybody else to emulate. Now, the third point I want to make here is I am extremely interested in the question of how big can the people's movement. I say this also because I think that right now the Muzaffarpur people's movement has reasonably big impacts in small geographies. And there are several villages of Bihar where even a light touch effect by the Muzaffarpur movement can have profound change. Think of what Sanjay managed to do, right? He managed to give a, about right now in his own panchayat, there may be about 500 households who regularly get Nalegav. That is one panchayat. That's basically ensuring subsistence for a lot of very marginalized people. To do that in panchayat after panchayat, village after village, is truly transformational, truly important. And these people have cracked it. They cracked it in the sense that, of course, there are problems, there's backlash by the mukhya, there's backlash by the local state, all of that. But they have figured out a way to keep make it work. And so, therefore, I am profoundly interested in this current expansion that they're doing. I think that it's useful to study it. And maybe two years from now, when we kind and I do a more formal study of this, as an economist, I'm trying to collect data and analyze this, is work with Miharika Singh, who's at Columbia University. Now, the two of us are working with the Muzaffarpur People's Movement to try and study the current expansion to answer exactly the question that you are asking, which is that, does this expansion work? Is it good to expand in this way? How does this affect the new panchayats? How does it affect existing panchayats? And probably in two years from now, we'll have a much clearer answer to the scaling question.
0: Thank you so much for that. It also gives me a glimmer of hope to see things changing. One last question that I have, given that your work is very expansive and you've been on the field for more than a decade now. If you were to be granted one wish, what would you change?
1: (laughs) The first thought that kind of came to my mind was the elimination of caste. It would be the easiest way, especially in India with hierarchies being so rigid I think gender injustices closely follow so I think those two things are the two big things I really wish that we learn to value community better I don't have a kind of strange romanticism for a certain way of living but I really feel like the way that our modern world is segregated into very sharp kind of individualized units we are losing out on a sense of community experience that you find still in the villages of Bihar
0: Thank you so much. I think empathy is the radical change we all need in ourselves and also in our politicians. We don't have empathy-oriented politicians. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time listening to you and I learned a lot in this conversation. If you found this podcast interesting, download our mobile app UNOther, spelled U-N-O-T-H-E-R for more conversations and literature on intersectional inclusion. If you would like to connect with intersectional experts, visit Belong Circle, a platform that makes it easy for a wide range of organizations and individuals to be intersectional in their work. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more.